Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. 2023 gave us a lot to uh, think about, and we're focusing on issues Canadians cared most about in 2023 and uh, projecting what may occur as far as those issues are concerned in 2024. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. As we look at 2023 and the transition to 2024, we're joined by the Premier of Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe. Premier, thank you very much uh, for joining us. So um, the questions, and, and, and there's conflict between, certainly between your government and the federal government and the uh, government of Alberta and the federal government. We'll be speaking with Premier Smith tomorrow. But uh, what's your takeaway from COP28, uh, Premier Mo, as well as the ongoing challenges dealing with uh, the combination of Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Gilbo, we're still Stephen Gilbo now talking about a cap-and-trade system. What do you, what's your takeaway there? Well, I'd say three things about COP28. One is uh, Saskatchewan had a large presence with a pavilion there, uh, um, and uh, it was really there to share uh, the, the how we produce the products that we do, the food, fuel, and fertilizer. And we produce some of the most sustainable products, and I've said that many times on this show and, and others, uh, that you can find on Earth. And uh, we were there to uh, provide a platform for Saskatchewan industries and people that work in those industries to share their story with over 200 countries. Uh, second, the, the positive of COP28 was uh, for certainly uh, the uh, the tripling of 24 countries signing on to the tripling of nuclear the nuclear power footprint. That's real action, actually. That is going to reduce emissions, and uh, Saskatchewan has a, a vested interest in that as we uh, mine all of the Canadian uranium that uh, comes from our province, and we're just in the process of commissioning a, a new mine and expanding to whatever degree we can the ones that we have. And, and Saskatchewan now, a Saskatchewan-owned company, is now in the nuclear industry with the uh, with the purchase of Westinghouse Electric. So that would be the positive. Uh, and then I would say the negative is the uh, the two additional um, regulatory actions that the federal government took in the lead-up uh, and throughout COP on the oil industry and the comments they made uh, specifically around uh, indicating that it's no longer about reducing emissions in the oil industry. It's about uh, phasing that industry out. And uh, they did make some comments with respect to that. Hey, listen, the, 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 the challenge that we have in Canada, the cost of living challenge uh, that we have, we see it every time we fill up a vehicle or go to the grocery store, is based in essentially a number of policies, but I'll, I'll name five. The carbon tax, the uh, clean electricity regulation, the clean fuel standard, and now the methane emission cap in the oil industry and the uh, the cap and trade. Uh, there's no other oil industry, oil producing region in the world that has those types of regulatory burdens on them. And it is costing Canadians money uh, each and every time uh, they uh, go to get groceries, fill their vehicle up, or essentially try to balance their, their, their household family income and their books each and every month. It's entirely instilled on us, the inflationary challenges that we have. And I think you're going to see that play out uh, in, in as a ballot question in the next election. Yeah. Uh, Premier, you just mentioned uh, f- the federal government's intent to phase out the oil and gas industry. Let me take you back to, I think it was 2016. Have a listen. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, we need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, that is going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. So there you go. 
It's not. A, it's not. A, it's not a new decision. It's not a new agenda. No, it isn't, and uh, it's it's been there for some period of time. And in the meantime, uh, what these uh, regulatory uh, measures are doing is uh, pushing up the price of fuel, uh, pushing up the price, the cost of production of our of our food, um, and other things that we use, and certainly pushing up the uh, the cost of us to access it through transportation and other. And so it's uh, the inflationary, the, largely the inflationary pressures that we are feeling as as, as Canadians are self-imposed. Let's come back to the issues of, of your province and particularly Saskatchewan's challenging relationship with the federal government. Is there anything, anything at all coming out of this federal government of Mr. Trudeau and uh, Mr. Gilborn? I just played you the clip from 2016 when uh, Justin Trudeau talked about, you know, can't close down the oil sands today, but we need to phase them out. It's the same language they're using in, in 2023. Is there anything coming out of this federal government that appears more conciliatory to Saskatchewan at this time? No. Uh, you know, if you just look at the last week with uh, the, the methane regulations uh, being committed to in the, in the cap and trade uh, system, it named me an, an oil producing area of the world that has not only a carbon tax, but a cap and trade system uh, instilled on it. Never mind uh, the, the, the methane agreement that Saskatchewan had. Saskatchewan companies had met and exceeded uh, the methane agreement that we had with the federal government. No consultation on the uh, with uh, with the province um, on uh, on these uh, on these regulatory um, announcements that were made in uh, during uh, the, the week of the the conference of parties or COP twenty eight. So uh, disappointing, uh, <laughs> you know, to say the least. Um, not surprising. And uh, as I said, they, they, these particular policies won't be enacted until at some point after the next election. Uh, so they will have to run on the cost of living increases that these policies are causing uh, for all Canadian families. And uh, you'll see, we'll see what the outcome of that election is. Uh, in, in the absence of a directional change uh, at the federal level, what you're going to see is at least our province, and I suspect some others, uh, that, that will challenge each and every one of these regulations as they come out. Because uh, the, the, the federal government doesn't have the the constitutional authority uh, to uh, change how or if we are developing our natural resources. It's entirely under the provincial authority as per the Constitution. And so uh, yet another overreach or attempted overreach. We'll see how that goes um, and we'll see if it even withstands the next federal election. Mm. Uh, might we see, as we look ahead to the next year, to 2024, might we see the Saskatchewan First legislation come into play directly? Yes, I'm, I'm quite certain you will see the Saskatchewan First Act come into play in uh, in 2024. Uh, there's uh, like the clean electricity standard. We've been, you know, very clear. Um, not us, but our Saskatchewan Power uh, utility has been very clear as to what the additional costs are on Saskatchewan residents for us to even attempt to. Although we can't uh, achieve uh, what they have set out in their their regulatory targets, or the targets that they have in the regulatory package that they've brought forward. So you'll see uh, the Saskatchewan. First Act, I think, in action at some point in time in 2024. We're just working through what that might look like, and our Justice Minister will uh, have more to add on that in uh, in the weeks ahead, I, was, I would suspect. And as far as the carbon tax is concerned, come January 1, what happens in Saskatchewan? It comes off natural gas uh, in Saskatchewan that is used for heating our homes. And it's also going to come off on a, on a percentage basis, the uh, uh, those folks that heat their homes with electrical heat as well as we own both the uh, the natural gas uh, provider and we own the uh, uh, the power company as well and so uh, we're going to remove that just like uh, it's being removed for Atlantic Canadians off their home heating bills. 
Okay, Premier, I'd like to ask you also this question, please. Your thoughts on the extradition of the Indian truck driver who crashed his rig into the bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos. Uh, we had a discussion about this the other morning on our Toronto radio station, AM640. What are your feelings about the extradition? Well, Any time I, I see or hear a uh, story on, on, on the extradition, my, my thoughts go immediately to the parents of the family. So, um, the, the, the court process will play out uh, for, for this individual, and that will be uh, what it is. Um, but each and every time there is a, a media story, a national media story, or, or whatever that is, I, I, I just can't imagine the uh, the, the revisiting of of, of uh, you know, the most tragic uh, loss uh, in these families' lives that they have to go through uh, each and every time. These are families that are you know, not trying to work through. I don't think you can work through uh, the loss of a of a child and a loved one, um, but to to move forward in some way and. Each and every time uh, this comes up, I, I think it uh, just makes that even more challenging. And so when I see a story, um, I stop and say a short prayer for each of the families that were impacted uh, in such a such a tragic way okay. by, on that fateful day. The economy, the interest rates, the inflation, the pain Canadians are feeling. And uh, 40% of us losing sleep every night, worrying about... Personal financial reality, that's what Canadians have told pollsters. Canadian homeowners in large numbers have concerns they'll not be able to afford their homes as mortgage rates climb. And we're living with $2.4 trillion of debt, consumer debt, according to Equifax, as 2023 comes to a close. Are we headed into a 2024 recession? Well, yesterday, the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem said, Inflation may be getting close to the bank's target of 2% by the end of uh, next year. And while not making commitment, he did say as well the Bank of Canada is increasingly confident interest rates will not have to be moved higher in order to get prices back under control. Well, let's ask our good friend uh, of this program, contributor to the program, Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, what he thinks. Dr. Cam, Tiff Macklem's glasses half full message yesterday, uh, re-interest rate hikes and cutting inflation to 2% by late next year. What do you make of that? Oh, it's full, but I don't like what it's full of, Roy. Uh, hi. Hi. You know, I don't, I don't like when politicians or people in power come out and make these innocuous statements like, well, this can happen, but it might not. And they just cover their bases. I, I, I really, I don't appreciate it. I mean, I think Canadians, given that what we've been through this year and, you know, and as a bit of a wrap up, you get the sense it's been a roller coaster, but it hasn't been a roller coaster, Roy, because roller coasters go up and down and this year has gone down. And so I guess as I've thought about this year and the word that keeps coming back to my mind is affordability. Uh, as you know, I think economic health is linked to physical health, is linked to mental health. And I think it all comes back to affordability and that calm that ensues when one can feed, house and clothe their family. And then you have the Bank of Canada come out yesterday and say, we're getting close to where we want to be, but we're not there yet. But remember, this is, a, this is a, uh, an institution that has been obsessed, obsessed with getting to 2% inflation. And A, they're not there, and they're not really close to there. 
And B, as I always say, given now that interest payments and rent payments and mortgage payments are becoming an increasing fraction of inflationary numbers, those numbers are only going up in 2024. So I'd like to know what he thinks is going down in 2024. So there's a long-winded way of me saying, Roy, I, I wasn't impressed. I think it's teasing people. And I think it's telling people, as they used to say on Johnny Carson, to stay tuned. So, so when you get that kind of message from the governor of the Bank of Canada at the end of the year, a year that has been, as you say, it hasn't been a roller coaster. It's been a constant upward climb. It's been a struggle for people, whether they're trying to d deal with their mortgages, whether they're trying to get food on the table, whether they're trying to fill up their vehicles to get to where they need to go. It's been a constant struggle and ever more difficult. And we're looking at $2.4 trillion of non-mortgage consumer debt in this country, according to Equifax. What is it that you would advise Canadians to do to prepare for 2024, coming off 2023, setting aside, if we can for a moment, Tiff Macklem's statement of yesterday? Well, I think you really have to do the proverbial batten down the hatches. I mean, if we want to look back 12 months ago, Roy, the lending rate was 4.5, and somehow today it's 5.25. And again, I don't see that moving anytime soon. So if you're one of the 60 to 70% now, we're still at 60 to 70% of Canadian mortgage holders that haven't had to renegotiate since the increase in interest rates. I think you better be very careful with anything else, any type of conspicuous consumption, we call it, any type of, of, of luxury or non-necessity, the time for a vast, vast number of Canadians, this is not the time to be making that expenditure. It's to be making that time to save that money because you know that your expenses in 2024 are going to rise. And, you know, again, I like when the Bank of Canada cites statistics, but they don't. And so I went to their webpage just to pull off a couple of simple numbers to say, compared to January of 2023, where are we in December of 2023? What are some of the things that are poorer today than we were 12 months ago? And these are not small things, Roy. Household indebtedness, unemployment to job vacancies, a population growth rate that's far outpacing employment growth. I mean, our government has made it clear that population growth is a growth strategy. I think that's a bad idea. The bank can say CPI is falling, but guess what, Roy? If you narrow CPI to food and shelter, it's still rising and it's rising quickly. And so then you combine that with a real gross domestic product that is right at zero. Those are the real numbers. I don't deal in fantasy. I deal in numbers. And so I don't know what Mr. Macklem is talking about because he knows these numbers too. So I don't really know where he's saying anything to Canadians other than 2024 is going to be a very rough year. We as a country are going to get poorer before we get wealthier. And so I guess I just wanted to hear that message and I didn't hear it at all. And at the same time, we have provinces at loggerheads with Ottawa uh, and introducing and passing legislation to protect their own economies and energy interests, Saskatchewan and Alberta particularly. 
but with other provinces, notably Atlantic Canadian jurisdictions, challenging the Trudeau government on the carbon tax. That, to me, is another recipe for uncertainty during times when we really could use some degree of, if not certainly, then predictability as far as our economic reality in this country is concerned. Well, sure. I mean, you take a look on the provincial level, you have net exports that are much lower for most provinces. Investment is way down. The only thing up is government spending. We know business investment is down. Household spending is down. GDP growth is down. This is a very flat looking economy on a provincial level. So what do the provinces want to do? They want to raise disposable income. I mean, Mr. Moe is bang on. We want to make our residents wealthier. Well, they don't have a lot of bullets in the proverbial gun. So what they'd like to do is get rid of sort of the low-hanging fruit. Let's take a pause, maybe not permanent, but a pause on taxes that are easy to scrap. And of course, those are things like the carbon tax, the cap and trade, things like this, because that is the provinces saying, give us a fighting chance. Let us do what we do best. We're a raw materials and an energy rich country. Can't we become exporters and not importers of the things we do best? Can't we have a shot at exploiting our comparative advantages? But for some reason, we know what the Bank of Canada's response is. We know what the government of Canada's is. And there seems to just be a general unwillingness to provide any growth drivers for the economy. And so I feel bad for the premiers, pretty much all of them, when they say, what's in this bag of tricks for us? Because the answer so far has been nothing. They're just left to their own devices. Yeah. And now let's talk about what we were starting to get to. And that is the reality is that we could fix ourselves if we had the courage to do so and the commitment to do so. And that is we have massive immense natural resources available to sell to a waiting world and from which Canadians would benefit massively economically and in many others, other ways. Where we're not going to do it. We're not going to sell it. We're not going to sell the natural gas. We're not going to sell the oil. Even though the waiting world is going to get it from somewhere, we're not going to be the suppliers. What do you say, Dr. Camp? You know, and it's frustrating because I remember not long ago, Doug Ford, like him or not, um, made it very clear that Ontario was open for business. But sometimes you really get the feeling, Roy, that Canada is not open for business. I mean, you asked what I would do. I've had the same five point plan since we started talking about this a year ago. So I don't want to be repetitive, but number one. I'd foster our resource economy. I would absolutely tear down barriers to trading natural resources. This one is just the most low-hanging fruit I've ever seen. I'd reduce the lending rate, and I would do it now. Some people will say, will it fuel some inflation? Well, maybe. But people can reduce their spending on conspicuous goods. People cannot reduce or scrimp on rents and mortgages. And I think we have to bring those fixed costs down to get back to my affordability argument. I think we need a growth strategy that doesn't involve immigration. I mean, adding people to a country is wonderful, but it fails in my mind miserably as a growth strategy. 
I think we have to lower taxes on all sectors of the economy. The left wing among us who are listening are going to drive their cars into ditches, but we have to scrap the carbon tax. We have to get rid of this net zero foolishness. Wrong policy, wrong time. Call me when the economy is booming. And then number five, which I know is controversial, but the public sector is being crushed under its own weight. And people have to understand that. And in my mind, it really is time to privatize some aspects. Healthcare, yeah. But I think we also have to look at other public goods, be it highways, garbage collection. Listen, nobody wants to spend more money, Roy. But the public sector can't go on like this. It is the only growth sector in our economy. And worse, worse, what I really hate seeing, and I know some of this has been repealed recently, but the public sector blames the private sector. And it does so by doing things like halting the number of new Uber licenses and things like that. That's the public sector saying we don't know how to fix something. And what I would like to put forth as kind of my thought for 2024 is the economy works and fixes many of these issues if we allow the economy to function. And it is time in this country to tear down barriers to the economy working and let the economy function. And I think people will be shocked to see how much better off we are 12 months from now if that would occur. You know, I'm really curious what your students would say to that argument and that position, because we're constantly hearing, and I, we, you and I haven't rehearsed any of this, we're constantly hearing that it's the young who would argue against the, uh, the selling of natural resources to the world, Canadian natural resources. How would your students approach this, do you think? Well, I have a stratified sample of students. I have business students. So I think that my students would be in relative agreement with what I'm talking about. But I admit, I, I never lie to the listeners, Roy. My students tend to be right of center. And they tend to be people that are, to use their expression, down with capitalism. So I think that my students would be in support. But, you know, at the end of the day, the number one questions I'm getting, Roy, are not about natural resources. The number one question I'm getting from my students are, we are studying so hard, Dr. Cam. Are we ever going to afford a house? Mm -hmm. We think we deserve, as a future generation in this country, whose parents or grandparents came here from somewhere else, we would like to do as well as our parents. And my students are terrified that they're not going to get that opportunity. So, you know, I've you've spoken to some of my students, and we're going to do that again, hopefully. Their number one concern is cost of living. Will they be able to live in an urban center? And I'm very sad when we have long conversations in our lecture hall, and my answer is, I'm not sure. And I'm really not sure if this government gets another shot at it. It's so unfortunate, and it's sad when uh, young people who have ambition to have, and they're right across the board in this country, they want to have their own homes, their own lives. They want to live the Canadian dream, and they cannot get there. That's what we're hearing again and again, and the economics show themselves to be that unless you're, you know, financially um, gifted or you have financial resources most people don't have, you may very well not get there with current situation being what it is. You talked about the public sector being a growth industry. Brian Passifium in the National Post wrote a few months ago, that the federal government hired 98,000 new government employees since 2015. 98,000. The entire Canadian military is only 63,000. 
So what's the plan there? What it's always been to use the public sector to get to full employment, that is an old-time Marxist strategy that never works. I mean, I'm going to quote Whitney Houston, Roy. Children are the future, and we really have to leave them something. And I think we have to do um, a much, much better job at leaving them on an, an economy and industries that are in a position to thrive. And we just are not doing that right now. But you know what? I live in hope. Let's hope that 2024 brings some better thinking and some better policies and hope that we get to some economic health. Okay. I want you to do more than hope. Have a look at 2024. What do you see? I see a lot of what I see today, unfortunately. I don't think the rates are going to come down at all until maybe the fourth quarter. I see no, I see, I just gave a five point plan. I think the government's going to address none of them. So sadly, I see the economy a year from now about where it is today with a higher rate of unemployment because I don't believe that inflation has finished moving through the labor market. So again, I hope I'm wrong, but there, but you know, if nothing changes, Roy, nothing changes. And so I really hope that there is a willingness on the part of our elected officials, be it the government, be it the bank, to look at a, a different approach to our economy and maybe put in drivers and things that will create growth as opposed to things that will create stagnation. Global News is reporting Canada's National Police Force, the RCMP, has arrested a youth in Ottawa in relation to an alleged terrorism threat against the Jewish community. Uh, this is what Global News has learned. We're about to speak with the Israeli ambassador to Canada. Yudor Moed will be joining us in a moment. Two national security sources, according to Global News, said the alleged plot was believed to be religiously motivated and targeted against the Jewish community. A male youth who cannot be identified due to his age was arrested in Ottawa last night in what one source described as a significant national security investigation. Global News has agreed not to identify the source who were not authorized to speak publicly about the ongoing investigation. The youth appeared in an Ottawa courthouse this morning, although the charges against him were not immediately available. He's been taken into custody until his next court appearance, which is scheduled for Monday morning. A man who identified himself as the youth's father Saturday uh, this morning said he did not know what happened. Uh, Global News is not identifying this man. He said the youth's mother told him he was picked up by the RCMP on suspicion that he was planning an attack on Jewish people. Uh, we will be speaking with uh, Global News' Mercedes Stevenson shortly on the program and hear more from Mercedes, uh, what Global News has found out and what this story, what the developments are. With us now is the Israeli ambassador to Canada, Mr. Ido Moed. We've spent quite some time with the ambassador on the program over the last number of months uh, since and including October 7th. Ambassador, thank you for coming back on the program. What does this story say to you? Good afternoon, Roy. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, well, I, I think that it's a source of serious concern. I wouldn't like to go into details about this uh, investigation, but we've, we've had some incidents in Canada where uh, Jewish institutions were attacked, uh, shot at, uh, Molotov cocktails being thrown. So it's definitely a source for concern. 
And uh, can you just expand on that a little bit when you when you talk about the concerns of the Jewish population, the Canadian Jews, and perhaps Jewish um, Jewish people visiting this country at this particular time? Uh, what uh, what are your more direct concerns? Have you had any threats at all toward the embassy? Uh, again, Roy, with your uh, permission, I wouldn't like to go into details about security matters. But as we've all heard in the last few weeks, uh, that there have been some incidents uh, in Canada around surrounding uh, Jewish institutions. So uh, the fact that that didn't happen prior to October the 7th is a source of concern that it's now risen to a level that uh, there, were, there, are in, there is an ongoing investigation going on right now. Um, I think that uh, I can leave it at that. All right, Ambassador, I appreciate that. Let's uh, look at what took place earlier this week, and that's the vote at the United Nations, a UN resolution that uh, uh, Canada, for the very first time, voted for a UN resolution, which was detracting to and in open opposition to Israel in its demand for a ceasefire and a two-state solution. Canada voted for that. No other prime minister, among them numerous Liberal Party prime ministers, including current prime minister's father, Pierre, have uh, taken that step. Justin Trudeau took it. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie told CBC she favors, quote, an accountability system, end quote, to investigate Israel's actions in Gaza. What are your thoughts on that, Ambassador? So uh, we have to ask uh, Minister Jolie exactly what was meant by that remark, but I think that the point of the matter is that all of us want to prevent further uh, uh, loss of life in the region, and that is something that Israel is working very, very hard to attain. That is something that we've been uh, working also working very hard on during this war right now. And as you remember, I've also uh, talked about that at length in your previous times that we've had this uh, uh, discussion on the radio about the efforts that Israel is making to make sure that as much as possible people stay out of harm's way and at the same time also facilitate the flow of uh, maximum uh, quantities of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. Uh, our, our war is against Hamas terrorist organization, not against the Palestinian population. But the fact that they embed themselves among the population makes it extremely complicated. Yeah. Um... Is, I, I have to ask you this, because this relates to the vote at uh, the United Nations, and it relates to where we are now in, in the world. Is anti-Semitism appearing within international governments, do you think? Uh, Israel might have considered, and perhaps still does, to be friends, including our own. We have to separate between what is going on on the uh, political level, I think, that government... Uh, around the world have uh, find, and especially the most friendly ones like Canada, find very good ways and channels to uh, transmit their concern about the situation on the ground. And that is, is happening also with Canada. Sometimes we uh, disagree, uh, like in this specific case. Um, that's disappointing, but uh, I wouldn't go as far as to characterize it as anti-Semitism of any sorts. Of course not. There is uh, there is uh, open debate about how we can save people's lives. It's a debate about how we can look into a future that is um, recognizing 
the uh, the future of all peoples, the, the right of all people to have the future of their own, which Israel has recognized numerous times when it comes to the Palestinians or its neighbors, of course, but in a way that will save lives and not will cre- will leave on the ground uh, the sources of the evil that we've witnessed on October the 7th. And so, therefore, we are fighting until Hamas is eradicated. And we feel that if we stop right now, uh, it will allow Hamas to rearm and to regroup and to continue with their attacks and to continue what they have started on October the 7th. And we will not allow that. Hmm. Were you surprised, Ambassador? Was your government surprised at the uh, Canadian vote on the UN resolution? Uh, we were not surprised. We, were, we, we knew and uh, we heard about that. But uh, we were disappointed, absolutely. Is Israel, and I, I see lots of emails, and I have a lot of communication with, uh, with my listeners across the country, and I'm not saying that I'm seeing a shift in, uh, in opinion, but there are questions being asked in the emails I receive. So I'll ask you this. Is Israel perhaps isolating itself from international support so close um, to Hamas's October 7th brutality with the IDF attacks on Gaza in pursuit of the goal of eradicating Hamas. You've talked to me about that, uh, the goal and how Israel's army, the IDF, is going about this. But is there danger that Israel may be isolating itself from the international community, or does that really, within the greater theme and the greater context of what you're trying to accomplish, does that really not matter that much? It's not that important compared to what you need to get done. There are two things. First of all, Israel is very much attuned to the international community and questions such as the issue of Israel isolating itself. Look, when uh, 100 over 150 countries vote against, uh, vote for, for um, a resolution in the United Nations that does not uh, mention the source of the, the whole affair that is unfolding in front of our eyes, this war that we are fighting against terrorism, then it's not, I don't think that Israel is isolating itself in that sense. It is that the world is blind. The world is not willing to look the truth in the eyes for political reasons. And that's, that's too bad. But I do feel, just like as Canada reiterated now with a statement together with uh, New Zealand and Australia, they have solid support for Israel's right to defend itself and also the very strong condemnation of Hamas and their atrocities, their terrorist organization and the atrocities that they enacted on October the 7th. And of course, calling for the release of the hostages that are still held by, by Hamas. So it's not an issue of isolation. I, I also think that the countries around us understand very well, and I'm talking about Arab countries, understand very well what Israel is doing. Uh, and the question is, again, the question is, again, at what price? We ask ourselves the same question. At what price? Because we continue to pay a price with our own people waging this war. But in our understanding, there is no other alternative but to fight Hamas until it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and that you... That, Sorry, Ambassador, go ahead. No, no, I'm, I'm saying this. We feel that this is a goal that should be shared by the whole world. We've seen a lot, uh, a great deal of anti-Semitic activity uh, on the streets, not only of this nation, uh, but in other nations in, in the Western world. We've had uh, university situations where students have 
Um, Jewish students have felt extremely unsafe in their environments. And we've also seen in uh, the United States in congressional hearings, Ivy League presidents, Harvard and so on, um, not denouncing the uh, genocidal aspirations or genocidal talk about uh, Jews and about Israel. Ambassador Moet, when you see that happening, when, when, you, uh, when you're made aware of what's going on, and you'd be much closer to this than any of us, how, does, uh, how do you deal with that as the representative of Israel in this country, knowing that we have Jewish students in this Canada of ours who are afraid to go to school or afraid to go to university, who have said that they will not necessarily inform people they're Jewish if those people don't know because they're, they're afraid? Is this situation spiraling out of control and, um, and being underscored, accepted by individuals such as the presidents of the Ivy League universities? I think there is a, that there is a sort of a, a, a perfect storm that takes place right now where misinformation and disinformation plays into uh, some of the enthusiasm that young, some young people have in being active on issues, on global issues, but um, unfortunately don't have the opportunity or the access or the will to have a look at the facts as they are. So what you hear is chants in the streets about uh, Intifada revolution. Nobody knows that Intifada meant another wave of slaughter of Israelis through suicide bombings that took place on Israeli streets and buses and cafes and restaurants. So I'm sure that people who are yelling for that don't really wish that to happen anywhere around the world, not in Israel, not anywhere else. Um, the same applies for from the river to the sea. That is just a sentence taken from the Hamas covenant. Uh, and so I think that when young people are chanting for these kind of uh, uh, slogans and don't take the time and bother to understand what it means, they don't know that they actually advocate for a lot of other things that Hamas Covenant is calling for, which is, for example, uh, not allowing for homosexuality or disallowing uh, women to walk around uh, freely in the street or to work. Um, a lot of issues that, uh, in, in their eyes, is the right application of Islam. Now, Islam is a peaceful uh, religion, but Hamas is a fundamentalist organization that looks at it in a very different way. And so I fear that what we have to do here is take the time to inform uh, a lot of people what is exactly they are talking about when they are talking about these kind of things, as well as work on um, Holocaust education and about uh, anti-Semitism eradication, because I, I think that there also there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding and lack of knowledge that feeds into what is we are, what, part of what we are seeing on the streets today. You know, when they call for, when the UN resolution called for humanitarian ceasefire without mentioning Hamas, First of all, uh, that is just far too inaccurate and vague, um, and signed on to uh, by, by this country at the same time. Um, there was a de facto ceasefire in place on October the 7th, wasn't there, Ambassador Moy? Absolutely, absolutely. A ceasefire was there that was broken by Hamas, 
during the fighting, we uh, reached a sort of a, 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 what we call a pause, a humanitarian pause, which was also broken by Hamas when they started shooting their rockets again into Israel. So it's, it's a genocidal terrorist organization that's completely uh, not only unreliable, it's intent on killing Israelis. That's the only reason for, for existence. So even if we had tomorrow a uh, two-state solution agreement with the Palestinian Authority, Hamas would still continue its war against Jews and against Israel. So we have to understand that these kind of uh, efforts um, are at best naive because they will not reach any difference on the ground. They will cause more death, both on Israeli and Palestinian side. So um, that is that it's just a different reality, and we have to face that. We also have to face the fact that we are talking about values, which are very important for all societies, that we have to defend because we are fighting evil, because we are fighting horrendous uh, people who, uh, as we know, already uh, killed, maimed, raped, burned, and uh, did horrific things to, to people, to innocent people, just because they are different. In, in about 30 seconds we have left, as you look ahead to 2024, what are you expecting, or is there any way to even have an expectation? I expect, I hope, let's, let, let's put it this way, I hope that we will have counterparts who will take responsibility for the values that all humanity stands for and will find a way to persuade their people to establish a peaceful entity that will be able to coexist with Israel uh, in peace in the future. I don't see that happening very soon, but I do hope for that. Our ability to protect ourselves in this very fractious world is becoming more and more significant, I think, of greater and greater interest. One of the privileges we've had on this program is to speak with Vice Admiral Mark Norman, the former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and Vice Chief of the defense staff. And we, we've, we've talked to the Admiral, we clearly hear from him that the Canadian Armed Forces' uh, lack of world-class warfighting equipment in this increasingly unstable world significantly alarms um, him and others in the, in the military world. And in March of this year, Mark uh, Norman, Admiral Norman, delivered a major speech at the annual Conference of Defense Associations Institute in Ottawa. And the Admiral provided me uh, exclusive access to the speech and what he said in part. In the very beginning, Admiral Norman, thank you for coming on the program. Um, what you said at the beginning of the, the speech is we're not taking defense and security seriously in this country, and our way of life is in jeopardy as a result. That's quite the opening. And, you know, I, I wish uh, it wasn't necessary to be so uh, stark, but uh, that that is unfortunately the, the place we found ourselves in. And, you know, there's really there's really two elements to this. Um, what, what's at stake? Um, and as I alluded, uh, it, it, it is much bigger and deeper than territorial sovereignty or physical security. This is all about um, our way of life uh, as a Western democracy, um, and uh, and the fact that we have um, for decades underinvested in defense and security more broadly, and the fact that uh, we've now got a, a national institution which is 
fundamentally in crisis. And uh, there's going to be no quick fix to this problem, unfortunately. Uh, you've said, in that speech you said, national security is much more complex now, and it goes well beyond the traditional considerations that have allowed our leaders to naively rely on our physical isolation from many of the threats of previous decades. Um, speak to that, please, Admiral Norman. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Canada has the luxury of geography uh, in, in two significant ways. First of all, um, we're surrounded on three sides by water, um, long distances, uh, either, uh, you know, to Europe or to Asia. Um, and uh, the Arctic is, uh, historically, has been if not unusable, certainly hasn't been um, actively used. And then the other key component is, of course, that we're, our next-door neighbor is the United States, uh, the most powerful country in the world. And and we've, quite bluntly, uh, we have lazily and irresponsibly depended on the United States for our security. And so those things have, have caused... Uh, generations of Canadian leaders to basically assume that it's not a problem. So when you look at uh, what we're looking at today, I'm going to bounce a little bit between 23 and then looking ahead to 2024. When you're looking at what you talked about in March of uh, this year, and you here we are, we are in December and we're looking into 2024, has the situation at all improved for the Canadian Armed Forces since March? Do you expect improvement in, in 2024? And maybe I shouldn't even be asking this question, given the fact the federal government has already committed to funding cuts to the Canadian military. Did I just answer my own question? <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's sort of two elements to this. Is the uh, global security situation uh, likely to improve in the next uh, next year or two? Um, I would submit uh, absolutely not. Um, we're, we're seeing... Um, you know, the crisis in Ukraine is is getting worse um, in many respects. Russia is becoming uh, even more confident, if I can put it that way. Uh, Ukraine is continuing to struggle. It looks like uh, their supporters and allies are starting to lose um, some patience uh, with what is coming up on nearly a year's worth of, uh, or two years' worth of conflict here. So, you know, that's, that's problematic. And then um, we've got Middle East, and uh, we continue to watch um, with great concern uh, developments in, in uh, Indo-Pacific. You know, I've discussed at length uh, a lot of the concerns about China. So that's the context. Then we have the concerns about the institution of the Canadian Armed Forces. And as you pointed out, um, you know, we have... We have uh, a budget that has been growing um, over the last decade or so. It's not growing enough. And then we uh, have seen fit, the government has seen fit to implement uh, a short-term cut, which, you know, will, will have an impact. It's going to have an impact immediately on some aspects uh, of defense. But more importantly, it's going to have a medium to long-term effect in terms of uh underinvestment in maintenance and training and a variety of other things. Uh, but you won't see that uh, for another three to five years. Um, but the problems we have today are the results of underinvestments um, five, ten years ago. So it's kind of a vicious circle in many respects. What are your thoughts, Admiral, on uh, the situation um, with, with Israel and Hamas following October the 7th? 
and Israel's military response to eradicate Hamas. You've seen the reaction that's happened across the, this country and around the world, and it's continuing. What is your assessment of that? Yeah, I have a number of concerns, Roy. Um, you know, first of all, as it relates to the the actions uh, that are underway right now, um, you know, it, it, I I I maintain that uh, you know Israel has has every legitimate right to defend themselves, uh, but I've also said on your show and elsewhere that but they have to act responsibly, and and I think we're starting. We're, you know, we're seeing that that uh, they're stated intention of rooting out Hamas and basically destroying it um, is is beyond um, ambitious and the cost of doing so is just horrific and so um, th- this is this is a challenge with respect to the world community with how far how far do they continue to allow Israel to um, you know heat the devastation that they're they're laying on on the the Palestinian people in in uh, you know in the area, and then counter to that, we've got another basically um, horrible um, terrorist organization that uh, feels that they're above the uh, rules and expectations of of international conduct, um, and they do need to be rooted out, but at the problem is that it's the people who are stuck in the middle of all this. So uh, we're also seeing a shift in Canadian um, popular opinion. We're seeing political leadership that seem to be unwilling to take a firm stand um, and uh, to single out, um, you know, Hamas uh, for for what they are, and that disturbs me. Um, and we're seeing, I think, a generational shift in terms of what has been traditionally steadfast support for Israel, and we're starting to see an increasing um, uh, degree of, I I would call it naive support, um, not so much for the Palestinian people themselves, which is completely understandable, but the fact that uh, those supporters are indirectly uh, endorsing uh, the, the horrific actions of Hamas. So, that's kind of a jumbled response to your question, but I, I think, uh, you know, we've got a real problem on our hands. Yeah, I'm just wondering about the uh, potential for the situation to expand, and that's been talked about a great deal. Uh, Israel was able to uh, work out agreements, or start to work out agreements, with, um, with neighboring countries they've long had issues with. Now that has been put on hold because of what's going on regionally, and the concern is that this could expand uh, and 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 move far beyond even the Middle East. Do you have concerns about that? Yeah, I do, and I echo I echo your concerns. You know, there's there is no one um, sort of homogeneous or monolithic uh, position here, um, but we do have a number of players uh, in the region who have stated. Uh, Without any ambiguity whatsoever, that that they they do not believe that Israel has any legitimacy as a nation, let alone uh, its ability to defend itself. And so I include Iran and some of the other regimes in that. And they're just looking for a reason or an excuse. Um, there are other um, non-state actors, some of the other terrorist organizations in the region, who have who share that view. So they're watching very carefully. We also have some 
more, I would say, uh, seasoned and responsible players. Um, you know, Egypt seems to be behaving quite responsibly and looking at this and trying to help out as best they can. And some of the other countries in the area are are equally so. But yeah, so so you know, there, it's it's what what is going to cause one of these uh, crazy factions or a country like Iran to. Um, basically decide that somebody's crossed a red line and now they're going to um, escalate the situation in some way. And that's partly why the Americans are being so um, aggressive in terms of uh, their strategic posturing in the region, and which is to send very clear signals to some of these possible players that they're not going to, they're not going to put up with any um, uh, irresponsible action on their part. Okay. Admiral Norman, what is our Canadian military capable of now? How could, how well are they prepared to act in the defense of this country if that became necessary? What do we have? What don't we have? What do we need? And how quickly could we obtain it if there were government will? Yeah, I think the best way to answer that question in terms of what we have is um, we have... um, uh, pockets of uh, capability. Uh, we have uh, insufficient overall capacity across um, all three uh, of the services uh, traditionally. Um, we have reasonable um, isolated capability. And so that, I mean, you know, special operations forces are, are very capable and reasonably well-staffed, although they they have shortages as well. Um, the Air Force uh, is being re-equipped to some degree, but it's uh, chronically short of uh, people, um, especially air crew and technicians. Um, the Army is a shadow of its former self. Um, it, it struggles to uh, sustain um, a relatively modest uh, contribution to our forward presence in Latvia, um, and it suffers both a lack of equipment. A lot of it has been gutted uh, to support the effort in Ukraine, or it just basically has rusted out um, and, and hasn't been replaced. And they're suffering significant shortages of people as well. And the Navy um, is... Um, uh, dealing with uh, literal rust out of uh, aging fleets that are now um, probably a decade past um, what their intended life uh, expectancy was supposed to have been, with replacements a decade plus uh, away in the future, and they're also chronically understaffed. So we can do little bits of what we're supposed to be able to do. We can deploy small packages, if you will, um, internationally, um, and, uh, but, but we don't have the bench strength. And, and then domestically, um, there's a significant uh, shortfall in terms of the kinds of capabilities that are required to um, protect North America um, in uh, terms of aerospace defense, in terms of maritime defense. So, you know, it's it, unfortunately, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. Um, in, in the simplest terms possible, it is a uh, perfect storm with respect to massive shortages of people, 
underinvestment that has caused the existing fleets to be uh, obsolete or or completely ineffective and um, a woefully uh, slow and inadequate procurement system. Uh, it can't be fixed overnight, uh, even if there was a will to do so, and even if uh, a government was prepared to throw um, billions of dollars of extra money at it, and I'm not advocating for that, because that there are so many broken uh, systems inside the overall um, processes of recruiting and training and procurement and everything else. This is going to take decades to fix, and it's going to take a uh, lasting commitment that has to span um, multiple mandates of different governments. So this has to stop being a political issue, and this has to be treated as a strategic issue that affects um, our national interests at their core, and we need to start behaving seriously. Are you confident we're going to do that? What level of confidence do you have that politics will be set aside in the needs of the country and, and uh, providing the kind of Canadian armed forces we require? I have about a minute and a half. Yeah. I, am I confident? Not really. Um, do I think it's possible? Yes. Um, and am I optimistic? Um, yes. However... Um, I really think, uh, to be quite blunt, we need, a, we need a swift kick in the rear end. And uh, um, if we can't do that to ourselves, then I think uh, um, our key and closest ally perhaps needs to uh, start sending us even clearer signals or perhaps start ways. Um, and uh, it would be naive of Canadians to believe that our great relationship with the United States is something that we can take for granted. And I think that the legislators and leaders in the United States um, still have a few levers left in their toolbox to point out to us that we're not, uh, we're not living up to our international expectations. Yeah, we're, we're living in such an unsteady world, and that's been made very clear to us, uh, first with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and now the situation uh, in the Middle East with uh, Israel and Hamas, and the demonstrations that have taken place and continue to take place and the genocidal uh, claims uh, against Jews and, and and Israel. It's a very, very unsteady world, and it's not something that we can, uh, we can just uh, bypass. So, 10 seconds, Admiral, do you feel better about the situation in 24 than 23 or more of the same? I think we're looking at more of the same, and I wish that was not the case, Roy. Um, but sadly, I think that's where we find ourselves. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.